That was a really terrible sign off. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Major Revisions. My name is John Walter, and as our continued exploration of new uh, new formats, new venues, uh, with our uh, reboot and revamp of the podcast, tonight I will be giving a solo monologue on why I hate birds. April Fools, just kidding. Jeff is here with me. Uh, Jeff, how are you doing tonight? I also hate birds. No, I don't. I don't really. I do. Um, I mean, they're not real. So how do you hate them? They're just little robots. I mean, I, I don't like the surveillance state anyway. You know, I don't need this Brave New World 1984 stuff, Hunger Games, whatever it is. Blade Runner. I'm running out of dystopian novels. But, you know, they're not real. So what does it matter? Damn right, but there's a whole bunch of ecologists who think they are. That's true. I mean, they their... used to be real, but they're not anymore. They've obviously been replaced. I probably think sometime in the 70s or maybe early 80s. It'd be interesting to know when the last bird went extinct. It's impossible to know. I know. Because the, the robots look exactly the same as the real ones. <laughs> Today, I learned the difference between a red-bellied woodpecker and a... Um, a red-headed woodpecker i actually been mixing them up but it's only because i had ones in my backyard that i could figure out what they were and then i all right i thought i knew what they were and then i googled it and then i found out they were different kinds of little drones but they're really cute so john why are we actually here besides april fools that was a good one by the way <laughs> thanks i i came up with that like five minutes before we started recording yeah so today we, uh, we want to talk about a question, and this question is whether ecology, and ecology specifically, but I think we can think a little bit more broadly about academia or STEM generally, because, I mean, we're kind of a part of that, um, and we're not really that different from some of the broader issues here. But would, would those fields be better off if more ecologists were deliberately entertaining or provocative in their professional activities their public professional activities specifically man that's a loaded question (laughs) because that presupposes that they're good at that well okay it does presuppose that they are good at that which um which maybe gets to one question uh just to make sure that we set the baseline, um, do, do you agree with the premise that, like, in general, ecologists do not pursue entertainment uh, as a main objective in, like, their professional activities, you know, things like, you know, papers, talks, you know, social media um, or media appearances where they're, you know, representing themselves as a professional um, and not just a everyday citizen? Um, so first, do you agree with that? I do. I think there's a gradient to that, right? I think that papers, specifically manuscripts, the least of all of those, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think necessarily, I think you can tell a good story and you can write good and that 
you can write good, you can write real good, that you can write well, and that that can be entertaining of a kind, right? But I don't think that's necessarily the, the goal of that. Um, I think as you move down that, I think it is a gradient. You know, if you move from a science presentation to a poster to, you know, a non-science-based uh, interaction, I think more that the goal of that is to be entertaining or at least if you want to get invited back those have to be they have to be engaging maybe not entertaining how about that sure yeah and so partly um there are professional conventions that influence the way that we act in these situations from you know paper writing to uh presentation giving to, to more informal types of types of things um, where we're still acting as a scientist. Um, and, and those conventions kind of shape what is, um, you know, norms of norms of behavior, standards of conduct, if you will. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've set the playing field, you know, do you, do you have a initial take on this? Um, would well, we my gut reaction, my gut reaction is the is a pretty hard no, and I think that's predicated on it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and I, I think the example of that is in paper titles, and I think that's you know something that we've touched on before. Your paper or, or poster titles, there are some pretty tired jokes that people will revert to to describe different phenomena. And it's just, you get the feeling like they think that they're the first ones to come up with that and it's kind of a tired thing. I'm not opposed to this, but I think, you know, there's, that's the lens that I initially view it through. So that's why I think I'm initially like, ugh, I don't know. I don't know. But when you initially pitched this, I, I thought about Twitter, right? And so that's why, you know, I think we tweeted out the, idea, the thing about our Kardashian index, which to review, ever, to give everyone a review of that, that was a paper from like 2014, I think, 2015 maybe, where a, uh, you call, what do you call someone who works with genomes? Is that a geneticist? Someone who works with genomes. Yeah, genomicist, is that a word? That <laughs> come up with this idea of the Kardashian index with an arbitrary number of five, that if your number exceeds five, you are overblown, meaning that your public persona uh, outweighs your scientific credibility. Whereas if you're below five, your scientific credibility is stronger than your perceived public persona. And it's calculated based on the number of ideal followers you would have on social media versus um, as a ratio to the number of actual followers you have on social media, which is your numerator. And then the formula that calculates the supposed ideal number that you should have is based on a random sample of 40 scientists. You know, so what you do is you figure out however many you should have based on the citations that you have. That gives you the derived number of what you should have. And then you put your um, actual count over this. And so when we did this, I ended up with a 7.37, so I'm overblown and have no credibility, whereas John has a 2.88, which is problematic for a lot of reasons, because I think I've been on Twitter maybe eight or nine more years longer than you have. 
So that's already is, a problem. So it feels like it should be normalized by that, I think, to some degree, maybe. But oh, also... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of problems with the, this <laughs> index, but but go on. No, no, so so yeah, David Siegel, friend of the show, you know, sent me a message about this. It's like, it also doesn't even consider how one uses Twitter in the first place, right? So if you look at Twitter, like I think most of the people who follow me are actually colleagues or scientists themselves. So anything that I tweet, whatever, you know, stupid thing I say, I'm not actually doing a whole lot of public engagement in that, right? Like that's not my place. There are a lot of people who do that and do that very well. And that's not me. That, arguably, that's never been the point of our show. You know, I don't think our show reaches a lot of non-scientists really. Um, and I'm okay with that. You know, it's podcast, right? Like we all do niche content. Like I'm not out here, we're not out here doing like, you know, the ologies podcast, which is uh, bringing you know, a lot of science discipline to a lot of the public. We're not doing that. So that doesn't even consider, you know, what the in, the role of, of that is. And so, I don't know, but they, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a silly, silly thing and it's outdated. And it's actually weird to think that it's, God, like eight years old now at this point, but <laughs> yeah, time, man. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's all just, you know, it's silly. So I don't want to like rag on it too hard, but you know, my, the thing that immediately stood out to me about it was that, and this kind of goes along the lines of like people using Twitter for different reasons, but, um, you know, younger people are more likely to be on social media and to have a history on social media and, um, you know, maybe, you know, more likely to use it for different reasons than just, you know, disseminating um, science. And this is also a stage where, like, you know, people are publishing, like, their first or their second or their third papers and haven't had time for citations to accumulate, Um and so it seems like it would be, you know, biased against early career people, um, you know, maybe once you hit a career stage where you're relatively established, it might have uh, a little bit better bearing on um, reality, but, but probably not by that much. Yeah, I feel like maybe you could just divide both the follower accounts by, you know, the top, the numerator by the years you've been on Twitter and the denominator by the years you've been publishing, like since your first paper. And maybe that would give you a normalized Kardashian index. So there you go. I don't, anybody who wants to go do that, you're welcome to do that. I give that to you for free. It would be more interesting to think about, um, and this is Siegel's point, so I don't want to take that from him, the way that people we actually engage with Twitter or Instagram, or I guess TikTok maybe too, and why. Like, I think you're right. Like, definitely more younger people skew towards Twitter. But that said, like, I think Twitter probably doesn't have that many users who are under their late 20s at this point, right? Like, it's a it's a pretty hardcore millennial-based social media platform that I don't think younger people care about. Like, yeah, I have, yes. a, teenage, I have a teenage kid, and they could give a shit less about Twitter. Yeah, no, that's, that is true, too. Um, it definitely is a bit of a, a generational phenomenon. Yeah, um, and not good for the anxiety or the depression either. Twitter's a hellscape. <laughs> but it feels like my hellscape. And so it feels good. You know, like Instagram depresses me on a different level. And that's why I don't really ever use it. Um, yeah, well, anyway, 
Um, so, so what do you see then? Like, I'm curious. Like, what? Do you, how do you see that people could be more entertaining then? Like, where do you see that this could could manifest in either papers, talks, presentations, or whatever? Like, pick one and, and sell me on this. Oh, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, so originally I was thinking about um, kind of being like deliberately provocative or controversial. Um, oh yeah, that's right. And 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 kind of wanted to think, but wanted to try and broaden broaden that out because I think, um, you know, I think being provocative is a way of tr like trying to create entertainment, trying to create interest around whatever you're doing, whether that's you know a, a paper or a talk. Um, And, you know, and, and try, you're trying to use that to um, garner, you know, garner more attention. And, and so, like, I'm not, I'm not talking about, like, people being a jerk, for, like, for the sake of, you know, whatever. Um, I think that there, and I think one of the challenges with this is there's a fine line between, like, people being assholes and, you know, people, um, you know, being a bit, being a bit provocative, right? Like, you know, maybe adopt, like advocating for points of view that are um, a bit contrarian, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, arguing, you know, somewhat directly against certain uh points of view um or whether that's you know uh, an approach to um you know to doing science or a conclusion that's in um you know in the literature or something like that um and i think I'm not, a, I'm not totally sold on this, but there, there, I have a sense that if we could do, like, if people could do this in a healthy and fair way, and there are big questions about whether that is, is possible. I don't want to presuppose yeah. that, um, yeah. that like being more entertaining could be good for the field. It like, it might, um, help to bring more it it might you know kind of like make it more fun and engaging to you know read certain papers or you know be um present at you know certain talks and that might um you know not just like benefit an individual but like you know bring a little bit more attention to um you know a research area or a field um, especially if it can push beyond just the, you know, kind of like the world of academia. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you guys have followed uh, this guy, Tim Gill, who I guess is like a sociologist. Um, on oh, Twitter. man, he's got a mixed reaction, man. <laughs> oh, it's such a mixed reaction. But like, he's, he's just like, so he's doing this thing where he is like, he. I mean, he's playing the heel, 
completely like the yeah you know, in like a very like, dry Stephen Wright humor kind of way yeah yeah and I mean it's not like that particularly isn't really my taste um you know he's basically like presenting himself deliberately as like a caricature of all the worst things about academia yeah and um, honestly he does it really really well whether you like it or not it is done really well i'm gonna pull up uh i'm gonna pull up some tim gill tweets here not to interrupt you <laughs> um but like you know he got Okay, I mean, maybe this was a spoof, but like, I think he ended up with like a write up in a fairly substantial, you know, popular publication um, that, you know, kind of has stemmed from him being a farcical dick on Twitter. Um, and And that's the thing that I wrestle with is like, do I, do I like this? Not really. <laughs> um, but like, it's also, it's also entertaining. And like the reason that, that he's gotten attention from this is that like, it is kind of funny. He apparently had an interaction with members from the band Propagandi, so... I like him a little bit better now. Fair. I'm trying to find you a good Tim Gale's quotes, but yeah, I totally understand what you're saying here. God, he tweets a lot. I appreciate it. Let's find some good classic ones. Um, this is much more difficult than I thought it would be. He's literally tweets dozens of times a day. <laughs> Uh, oh, here we go. Archaeology is just a glorified form of both thrifting and dumpster diving. However, you can't even wear or eat what you find, so I don't really even see the point. Plus, who asked you to disturb the dead? Just leave all the crap alone and help us create a better TV or app or something. <laughs> that one actually is pretty funny. Yeah, that one's, that one's pretty good. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there there was there was one like a month ago or two months ago that was that caused quite the stir, but I forget you know what it was. It seems like he's he's dumping them some people now, so he might have actually evolved and gotten even better. But he does. Uh... Yeah, I don't think I I, I don't think I would do it. It's um, I could see the point in having like a you know fake account or something that did this kind of for fun. Like there's a there's one called Ego Hydrologist. That is a, a similar joke account that mimics, you know, a famous heavily egoed personality that tweets about their own papers and whatnot from that point of view, but it's not, you know, it's not a, a, a real account necessarily. So I don't know what yeah, I like I like alt Twitter. What do you call it? Is it is it alt Twitter or whatever that, but there's that whole vein of twitter that's been around since the very very beginning of just the craziest weirdest shit out there like the most famous one is like went who goes by the or his name's drill but goes by the at went that has the you know crazy just ridiculous absurdist tweets like i've always been a fan of like the absurdist part of that but the 
the straight up provocative part. I don't know. It's such a mixed bag because it gets a really mixed reaction from people. Mm-hmm. But that said, like that said, I also think that the over sincerity is a problem too. And and maybe that's another issue. Is maybe it's just I'm not one for extremes in either direction. So what what do you mean by over sincerity? I mean it's a bad word, but it's just like living so out in the open, maybe. But maybe that's my own, you know, hang-ups. It's just airing every every unfiltered thought, or maybe it's more like the maybe it's akin to. Yeah, I think I think what I'm thinking about is maybe a, a different axis of this, but similar to the vein of the uh, the people who have the signs on the lawn or you know stuff like in this house we believe kind of folks. Uh, you know, I think fake advocacy and fake. Maybe it's not fake, but it's like performative mm-hmm. stuff bothers me too. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I would prefer the the vague, provocative, and sarcastic to the you know performative and, and gross part too. But it's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's whatever. It's all it's all how you engage. There's no right way or wrong way. Yeah, I mean. I don't know. So like pulling things a little bit, you know, back a bit. Um, so I think, I think like the potential benefit of ecology being more, an ecologist being more entertaining or more product provocative is the potential to garner more attention um, for our for our field um and it's it's not just by like creating controversy but i think that there is you know a like there's a there's a piece of being entertaining that is also like crafting stories um and and conflict is part of stories and that's you know sort of where that like that thread of being provocative or, or controversial, you know, kind of pulls, you know, pulls into this. Um, and I think it's true that, you know, stories, you know, much more than like, you know, facts and figures, you know, resonate with people um, and, you know, have the potential to have a greater potential to influence people um, including scientists, but especially, you know, non-scientists, um, you know, to kind of like influence the way that they, they think and, and help them to, you know, understand some of the problems, you know, climate change and related global change issues that, you know, that we're grappling with. And, and so I do, you know, I, I do feel that there are kind of some some potential benefits um, in that direction to, you know, to, to focusing a little bit more on like what would really make this engaging um, for people who aren't based on their training and a way of thinking and like, you know, predisposed to be excited about this, you know, this piece of research. 
Okay. Yeah. So I think I follow follow more on that now too. And, and I think to some degree, like really good science communicators do this. And, um, but I think the, the, when you're edging into the provocative aspect of it, I think that is an area that has, one has to be careful for sure. You know, I think the idea of, of do people need to be more engaging? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. hundred percent agree on that. Um, but the, Provocative. Like, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on who you think maybe in other fields does this well. Because, um, you know, thinking particularly in the sports world and sports commentary world, there's a lot of people who do this poorly. You know, the classic example, I think, being like Jim Rome. Like, I find Jim Rome to be super obnoxious. And, you know, a lot of pundits in general tend to be very provocative for whatever reason. Like, that's kind of what would write wing talk radio and podcast world is even predicated upon mm -hmm. and to be fair like left-wing stuff too it's you know intentionally provocative and um but i could see like you could do that you know particularly well so you know like, you, you could think about like i'm trying to think of like okay so my own work like i could see like if you're, you're on twitter or something and that's what i use as an example because it's what i'm most familiar with like say i wanted to put out a tweet on or a tweet thread on why uh, you know, or what the advantages are of, you know, because I think the, I'm getting there to a point of, you know, actually cutting down trees is a positive, right? So you, I can see this leading off with like, hey, killing trees is actually a good thing, a thread. And then you follow that up and you talk about like different types of forestry practices or management that shows that, you know, if you're actually selectively logging in certain places, this is actually a net positive for X, Y, and Z. Like provocative is in a way like you bring people in and then you get them, you know, to kind of think about it. The analog might be similar to a clickbait title mm -hmm. in that respect, and that not be a bad thing. You know, I think giving punchy titles to, to talks or presentations is a good way to lure people in. I do think that you one needs to be careful of how they do that, right? Like, I don't want to see another goddamn does size matter title. And anything ever again, personally, like it's like, come on, guys, like for real. Yeah, but, I mean, I, I, I yeah. think, I think the way it's it's done, if it can be done, you know, to the extent it can be done well, like you know, it when it's really done well, it leans away from tropes that are related to sex and you know, and gender and race. Um, yeah, because, absolutely. You know, because because those are those are rightly um, important issues that um, I, you know, I think it is rightly unprofessional to make, you know, flippant jokes about, um, a, you know, you know, like, you know, period, you know, particularly in a professional context. Like, I don't want a shirt that says soil ecologists like to get dirty, you know, you don't necessarily need like all the weird innuendo of stuff that can be isolating to certain people. Like, I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's boomer humor. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I do think that like sports and sports journalism are kind of an interesting analog to this that like both provides an interesting counterpoint, um, but also uh, 
illustrates some of the challenges that you know that scientists face is because sports is explicitly about entertainment and so I, I think that there is a you know degree to which um not not perfectly because you know there are of course like some journalists who don't like other journalists and athletes who have beef with journalists uh, but I think that there is a sense that like we're like we're all in this to entertain people um and that comes with a little bit of like a little bit of like ego checking like all right like if someone says something lousy about me like they're just doing their job like you know they're they're a reporter they're a commentator like yeah that's fair in sports like, yeah wh- that's, whatever that's the thing um and so I, I think that there's an, like an extent to which like people just know not to take that personally because it's for entertainment. But there's a gradient though, right? Like I think if yeah. you go to the extreme where you're talking about, you know, professional wrestling as in, you know, WWE or whatever it's called these days, like that's explicit. It's scripted. There are people who play heels and people who are, you know, I don't know what the opposite of a heel is, like crowd favorite or whatnot. Like that's explicit. But then you go to, um, you know, like the, the NFL or something or, or some other, maybe like the NBA or yeah, NBA might be a good example, right? Because you have kids who are coming in there they're, they're kids, right? They're getting drafted straight out of college or even high school or like 18 or 19. And then you have people just lambasting them and, and tearing them down in some cases on networks or, you know, these sports shows. Like, yeah, it's fair game. I get it. You're well compensated. You're paid. It's you're in the public eye. And that's what comes with it. But I do think there's a difference there. There's at least a continuum of that. And so I feel like maybe one of the potential perceived costs of this might actually be the concern that making science more about the person than the work. Yep. No, I. I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, I, I think that in, in different cases, like, you know, we already have issues with elevating personalities. Um, and, you know, it, it, that's usually, at least purportedly, because they do good science. But, um, you know, one of the one of the effects of that is that it does, you know, give certain people who are favored, like, you know, kind of a, a free pass to, um, you know, to, to behave badly at times. Um, there's, there's of course, I think the, the axis of, of, you know, identity that comes into this, that I could get away with this a lot more as a white dude, as a straight white dude, I could get away with this a lot more than, I don't know, just probably literally any other group, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's no disagreement here. Yeah, it's like, you know, if you're a, I don't know, if you're a trans woman who, of color, like, you're, I just don't see you could do this. And then it's, so I don't know, I don't know. Engaging, yes, provocative, I'm just, I'm not sold on. I don't know, unless it's 
there's such it feels like there's such a narrow window that one could do that without risk of exposure. But okay, well, okay, so I have a question related to this for you. Do you feel like we are public figures? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. I don't know not, the answer to this either. Not really. Um, I mean, all right, you know, for, <laughs> you know, for the better part of the last decade, like, you know, I've been, or, you know, for actually now, well, I've been writing about my science in a way that, you know, you can find on the internet and, you know, for seven, eight years now, like we've been doing this podcast that, you know, you can find what I think about a lot of things on the internet. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like so, we don't have paparazzi following us. Right. And like, but... I mean, outside of a very admittedly narrow sphere of the world like nobody knows who we are um but i'm sure you can find audio of me saying something dumb on this podcast <laughs> so, so this is i think something that's a byproduct of social media too it's you know more of a writ large cultural thing is that you know 15 20 years ago you know Oh, okay. So 50 years ago, maybe you had a handful of like 50 to 100 hyper celebrities that like everyone would recognize and they were there. And then now you have this influx of like low level celebrities or infamous people, public figures, I guess would be the better word. And there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them, you know, random YouTubers. Uh, scientists. Like, I would argue that we are public figures because I think of, you know, specifically as a government official, because of my designation of who I am, I am listed on the websites with my contact information. Whereas the 96 people who work where I work, only four others are listed on the websites. You know, it's like myself, the other two scientists, and our, you know, forest manager and assistant forest manager. That's it. Like we're the public outfacing side of this. Like there's no reason that a random fireman or you know, a random engineer or whatever needs to be on there. They don't have that. They're not compensated enough to do that. You know, someone you stick your neck out when you I think to a certain degree, if you choose to be a professional scientist, whether in academia or government or you know, industry to some degree, like you are complicit, or not complicit, but you are in a way accepting some type of semi-public figureness. And that's just part of it. Yeah, I mean, I I I think that's I think that's fair. Um, I think that there's also gradients of publicness, right? Like, absolutely, absolutely. You know, like Mike Mann or Catherine Hayhoe are much more public, absolutely. That you know that than we are. Um, Okay, so that, that's, a, that's a good comparison there, because actually, I think the two of those, I would say, and I'm not saying I think Mike Mann is openly provocative, but I would say he's less provocative by choice than Catherine Hayhoe is. 
I think they're both equally engaging for different reasons. Do you think, so you think that Mike is less provocative than Catherine is? No, no, I'm saying he's more provocative. Okay. Stance. That's what I'm saying. I think the extreme to this is Neil deGrasse Tyson. And that's why I'm thinking of not a science communicator. I think Bill Nye is a science communicator. He's not a scientist. I'm going to get shit for that. That's my provocative. This is, but whatever. He's not a scientist. And so he, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson says shit that either he's not thinking, which is legit a possibility given some of the stuff that he said, or he's saying it to be intentionally provocative. To what end? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would say that, you know, I don't think Catherine Hale is that provocative, but I think she's wildly engaging. Yes. And not, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make the point that those are like diametrically opposed. I think you can be provocative and be engaging. I think you can be engaging and not provocative. And I think you can be a provocative and completely unengaging. You know, and I think, I think a lot of what is in that, you know, dichotomy is how, like, how substantive are you matters a lot to how engaging you are and whether you effectively toe that line between, you know, kind of like needling at a, you know, at a, at an issue or a contradiction and being offensive um, is, is also a big part of that, that axis. Um, Like, I don't know. I, I think some of the things that certain people are, you know, provocative about, they're not very substantive. And so they feel like attention seeking. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's not something that I like that I want to promote, but, you know, I do feel like, um, you know, if you can have evidence to back a point of view that is against the prevailing way of thinking, or you feel like there are, feel like you know and and have logic and evidence to back it up that there are ideas and ideas that might be closely tied to particular scientists that are that are incorrect you know that like there are ways to be productively provocative and substantively provocative by pushing back against those uh those ideas Trying to think of, do you think of any instances where you think this has been done well, or conversely done very poorly? Well, so I think, um, I mean, one famous example of a paper that is, you know, calling out another set of ideas that you kind of have to know the the this the context, but are associated with particular researchers is you know the spandrels paper and you think that one was provocative i think it i think so i mean it it takes a little bit of it takes a bit of reading within the the context but i think that it was i think that it is and um, in the time that it was written, was received as, you know, a, a rebuke of, you know, adaptationist ways of thinking about evolutionary biology. You know, it written in a way that decades later feels, you know, offensive. 
to me anyways. Um, but I think that in the, yeah, in the context that it was written in, it was clearly a, you know, a, a conversation that was happening in the field um, that stuck out, uh, you know, stuck, stood its ground in a pretty, uh, a pretty clear position. Yeah, I guess one could argue that was a reaction to, uh, you know, Wilson's more provocative, was it Sociobiology, is that the name of that book? Sociobiology, yeah. Yeah, that it, you know, it was more of just having to be intentionally, you know, provocative in a way as to counteract the inherent racism in that book. And I think, you know, Gould did a much better kind of job of that. So I was trying to see if I pulled up for, with great irony, Belinda, who I think does do provocation for better or for worse is Jeremy Fox. The uh, dynamic ecology's most cited ecology papers of the last 10 years, which was, uh, you know, written in 2018. And of course, like the actual most cited papers, a lot of them are method stuff, you know. But there's provocative ideas in here, but not really anything provocative titles necessarily which is kind of surprising to me actually i mean so two papers that you know come to mind one is a jeremy fox paper um (laughs) the the paper that he wrote about uh i think the title is the intermediate disturbance hypothesis should be abandoned um you know that that's a a paper that bring you know brings evidence um but you know stakes out a you know pretty clear ground um against an idea that is you know pretty prominent in the field and i think you know even despite some of this evidence has you know has continued to be you know fairly important you know i think partly because of its sort of intuitive appeal um and I got to give you, that's a hell of a good example because I'm like, no, that paper's totally wrong. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like you can't just base all of your stuff on musicalism experiments, which themselves are arguably not a real relevant representation of the, the universe. And then say like, oh, this thing we didn't find in our you know fish aquariums didn't work in real life. Uh, another paper that I can is you know, in a different vein, uh, but clearly has a provocative title. Um, also an alliterative, alliterative title, which I appreciate. Um, this is a, a 2011 paper from Wharton and Hui called The Arc Sign is Asinine. And it's about the, the arc sine square root transformation um, that historically was used a lot with proportional data. And since the uh, this is probably somewhat of an anachronism now because, because like beta regression and GLMs are so easy to implement um, in, you know, in R and in SAS, I think, you know, I can't remember the last time I've seen a paper that used an arc sine square root transformation, but. No, but I do, I do know for a fact, I have at least two or three times I have, Reference that paper in response to a review and when I've seen an arc sign transformation. Yeah. So, um, I thought that one was really good. 
there's the one that because I, I know I was the one who tasked is like, oh, we should go out and look for papers that did this. And I can't remember if we talked about this one or not on the show. And I don't even know if it's published yet, because I think it was a preprint if we did talk about it. Was that one that said that we should change the language which we talk about statistical significance and had the chart of like, oh, if you get a p-value of this, you should say it's strong significance, or if it's p-value of this, you should say it's weak inference or whatever it was. And I was like, hard no on this. I was like, no, no, no this is ridiculous. And that was that was an intentionally provocative paper, even if it was trying to sell, you know, a different methodology. You yeah, remember, so did we talk about this one, or is that just you and I talk off air? I th- I think you and I just uh, just talked off air about it. I don't think I ever actually read that paper um, because I was predisposed to dismiss the idea. <laughs> uh, but I read some of the Twitter uh, discussion of it and I, I believe it is published and there are also rebuttals to it that have now been published, um, which, I, which I think is interesting. And yeah, I mean, gosh, that, I mean, that is just a topic that is designed to steer, to stir up discussion. Um, you know, even even if they're offered in very pure and good faith, like there's no way that you can wade into that topic in a uh, widely read venue without, uh, yeah, stirring up a lot of discussion about it. Um, Honestly, the things that one chooses to be provocative about might actually be the bigger issue in ecology then. Because it feels like there's some touchstone things that everyone has an opinion on, in some cases stronger than others. Or those opinions tend to be strong regardless of what they are, that if one chooses to be provocative about that, that's definitely going to trigger a point. Whereas if you're provocative uh, about something less controversial or less ingrained that one could not necessarily create as much of a stir yeah i mean we can test this we should just write the same paper and we'll each give it a different title. I'll give it a boring title. You give it a provocative title. And then we'll do it in like one of these pay for print journals or whatnot. And in 10 years, we'll see which one has the greatest citations to it. We could probably just put them in the same journal and the same issues. I don't think those people read those things anyway. So if you're listening and you want to fund this experiment, it'll cost approximately $4,000. Maybe we do need a Patreon just for this kind of stuff. <laughs> no, I can't find this paper. I feel like it's a preprint. Um, oh, wait, no, hold on. No, that's not it. Okay. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter. I'll find it again at some point anyway. But the... To get back yeah, to our so actual wanna... point. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I, I want to I get back to this idea about like, there are things that you can be provocative about, but not others. Um, 
And I think that this, I think it's easier and in some cases much more ethical to be provocative about things that aren't rooted in personal identity. Yeah. Uh, Like I, you know, I don't think that we as a field should be, you know, tolerant of, you know, provocative takes that involve, you know, racism or sexism or homophobia or transphobia, right? Like that, that's not the kind of provocative that we're, we're talking about here. What I think we can be maybe a little, there's room to be a little bit more provocative is about, you know, about, I, you know, ideas. Um, one of the challenges I think is that we are in a field where, you know, people's ide- ideas and people's identities are closely tied to one another. And I don't mean that in this necessarily in the sense of like, you know, people who are of a, you know, particular, you know, ethnicity or class or gender have like similar ideas about ecology. What I mean is that like, we are in a intellectual field where we have uh, ideas about how the world works that we hold closely to uh, ourselves and have um, personal and emotional investment in. Um, And and, and so, and so that's the challenge, right? Like, you know, I think, I think maybe somewhat like, I think professional sports and sports journalism is, is like those people who stay in it know how to pull themselves out of it a little bit and, and not take things as personally. And I think in some ways the field would benefit from that, that kind of thing, but you know, but it is challenging. Like the reality is that we spend years, if not decades of our lives working on particular ideas. Um, and it, you know, it does, it can be emotionally painful, uh, to have those ideas, you know, called out and opposed and, you know, your work and your identity almost become one. Yeah. And I mean, like we, we can talk a lot about whether that's a good thing or not, but um, probably not. Yeah. I, that, that's a whole other episode. So I don't want <laughs> maybe, maybe like, maybe like three episodes and 17 therapy appointments. Um, so I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not ready to go to go down that discussion yet. I have, I have feelings and I have thoughts. Most of them are incoherent at this point. Well, what do you think are tangible things that people could be do to be more entertaining or engaging or provocative in a positive way? I think leaning into that, like that narrative is, is a really, you know, it is a real key. And that doesn't have to involve being, being controversial or provocative, but like, you know, conflict is part of, is, is a big part of narrative. Um, it's a big part of story right? Like when you write a story, you classically, like the first part of any story is setting up what the conflict is about. You know, conventionally that conflict is in, in science is about something unknown that we want to know about the world. Um, it's the knowledge gap. It's your study versus the knowledge gap. 
it's your study versus the knowledge gap. But I think there's also room for that conflict to be like your study versus the prevailing wisdom about this idea. Yeah, that's fair. Or, you know, or like your study versus what somebody else is promoting about this idea over the course of that narrative, you know, prove that person wrong or reconcile the two positions. But part of being provocative is I think kind of like embracing that conflict, not just against that unknown, but against different ideas and perhaps different people that embody those ideas. Although I I don't want to advocate personal attacks, I think that is someplace that would harm the field. But I I, I think in the in the you know in the realm of challenging um, ideas and you know prevailing wisdom, that there should be room to to do that to be controversial to confront those things. Yeah, I like the ideas. I like the focus being on the ideas rather than the persons for sure. I think there's some interesting stuff in the you know science history about like Cope and Marsh, like some of the founders of paleontology, and the degree to which they went after each other that was just hugely detrimental you know, both of them and to the field. So I would say maybe steer from that one, but definitely, yeah, I like the idea of being, you know, countervailing ideas on that. Like I, you know, I think I probably have controversial thoughts on the role of biodiversity in certain situations in, in ecology as it pertains to certain functioning, but also like I realize that's predicated upon how one defines biodiversity. So you know, that's the different things. But, and then I probably have lots of thoughts on how one defines certain aspects of things. And, you know, I'm sure it's the same as for you. Like there's probably different things that you find that yourself that you're like, oh, this thing that maybe the majority of people agree on, like, I don't think that's necessarily the right thing. But, you know, I do think it's, it's an art on that. I think the thing that I would propose out there is, I think you're right about from a writing standpoint is, is thinking about the idea of narrative as one pertains to presentations as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of crafting that. And I think that's something that we talked about this, having a future episode on is really focusing on story and narrative and the potential that plays and the importance that plays in relaying science and understanding these you know, kind of concepts. I don't, I don't know if I have any recommendations for people on social media. I think social media should be a thing that if you choose to engage in, you do so of your own volition and the degree to which you do that. You do. Yeah. I choose to not put a lot of personal stuff up. You know, part of that is with the recognition of the, you know, semi publicness. Yeah. I mean, like I, I certainly don't want to like police what other people choose to do. But, you know, for me, yeah, like, you know, there are things that I don't really want to post about, and it's not really like a brand building thing or anything like that. You know, it's just that, like, there are things in my life and probably in anyone's life that they don't really, you know, feel comfortable putting out there for anybody to to see. I, I think, so I think one of the things that is maybe true though is like it's hard for other people to know how to engage with accounts that are very inconsistent in how like how professional or how personal they are if I don't know I don't know if that if that makes 
if that makes sense. I think I so. I, I find I find it's actually easier for me to to in, engage with folks who tend to be a little bit more personal, or, or at least not just not just professional. Yeah, I know there are professional accounts where I mean, you're not going to see me being a reply guy on anyone. I mean, occasionally I'll make the rest random comment on something. I think it's dumb, but for the most part, I don't. Oh yeah, I have a rule that like if I see a stupid, if I all right. I won't call it stupid. If I see a tweet that I don't agree with, unless it's like somebody that I know and feel like I have, like, like I can have a productive con- like conversation with, I just walk on by, it, you know, and just like ignore that because I don't, I'm not going to change somebody's mind on Twitter. I will police like what's in my own feed. Like if someone replies to my stuff with something I think is shitty, like I'll, push back on that but like i'm not going to go into someone else's someone else's feed and and criticize what what they're saying that's fair i don't think it's really i mean i did so i did like a reply guy dr oz last week so i'm not without i probably do about one a month (laughs) all right so i feel like so maybe, maybe this is back to the like public figure thing but like that's a whole different punching up that is that is punching up, not punching down or punching laterally. Um, yeah, and that's which is honestly like part of the re- like my disagreement or my complete lack of interest in a lot of stand up comedy for the last few years is that I think the best stand up comedy when it's done you know when it's done really well is hilarious and great and you know I like people like Bill Burr a lot but like most comedians punch down yeah you know, I, I don't need Dave Chappelle's bullshit like I don't I don't think it's that funny it's not. And, you know, like, he used to be funny. And then it's just, it's eroded. And so, like, I don't, yeah, like, I'm going to punch out. That's fine. But, yeah, punching down, I think, is never a good thing. And I think that's definitely related to what we've been talking about, for sure. Yeah. And related to, like, who gets to be the de facto arbiter of those, uh, you know, kinds of discussions. It is something that's related to, you know, your privilege based on whatever, you know, different identities you hold. Don, this has been really thoughtful, man. I, this has really kind of blown my mind in a lot of ways. Have we resolved anything? I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. Maybe we didn't uh, need to. As long as we're not just just asking the question. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that's pathway. Ninety nine percent of the time, that's the most disingenuous shit (laughs) in the world. Um, I mean, like you know, I I think that's that's one of the things I feel like we've skirted. You know, we're seventy six episodes in. We're not ones to do a lot of hot takes. You know, I think we have even the things that we have strong appealings or strong feelings about or strong thoughts about. I feel like they're reasoned as far as like you know we have you know we can talk about them. And even like places where we disagreed, you know, either you, I, or Grace, or anyone else in the past has been on the show, you know, we've had really thoughtful discussions, but we've never went into something, you know, I think has been intentionally to to denigrate or take away from anyone in any cases, you know, anything that I've said, I hope that I've just punched up, right? Like, I'll talk shit about Neil deGrasse Tyson, for sure. That's punching <laughs> up, right? Dude doesn't know my name, doesn't care. That's fine. He's infinitely more of a public figure than I am. There's a continuum there. No, and I like I, I hope folks will, will feel the same same way about anything that that I've said. You know, I really I really don't think it's right to police what other people think 
about just about anything and whatever I, you know, whatever I say, like, you know, I offer with the caveat that it's, you know, it's my opinion. It's, it's based on the things that I've experienced, which are not the same as what other people have. And yeah, I mean, I, I try and approach life with that, you know, that humility that other people have reasons for thinking the way that they do. And even if I don't fully agree or empathize with those positions to, you know, it's, it's part of acknowledging other people's humanity, right? That they have their, you know, rights to their thoughts and beliefs. And it's not my place to, you know, to dictate what those, what those are. I actually really appreciate that you brought up like the, the Tim Gill post. That was a really, I think helpful to this and I you know and this is again not to denigrate him I do think I do think objectively and kind of pulled back a lot of it is is very funny I do think four or five six years ago it would have been a lot funnier and I think part of that is a recognition of kind of where we are as a society and I think about you know how things like maybe think of the frame of of comedy films of how they've progressed in our lifetime if you think about those things from the, the early aughts, like the Farley Brothers movies, the, you know, something, was it There's Something About Mary or worst fucking example, Shallow How, <laughs> right? Like that was a fucking mo- Hollywood movie that put someone in, like put Gwyneth Paltrow or Uma Thurman, I forget, like in a fat suit. It's just fucking god awful movie. But that was like mainstream comedy at the time. Like that's where it was. And I feel like there's, you know, things have changed radically culturally. And I feel the last two or three years, a lot of that, the cultural zeitgeist has, has changed to at neck break speed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do think some of the stuff that he says is humorous, but also there's time and place. And I don't know if it matches up necessarily where people are on that. And so I'm not in any way advocating for a lack of, of being provocative but maybe reframing it as being thought provoking. Like think of the idea of what is it you're trying to provoke? Like, is it outrage? Is it interest? Thoughtful contemplation? It, we're recording this on April 1st, the literally the only fucking day of the year that anyone thinks critically about everything that they see on the internet. <laughs> you know, like, And not just blindly retweeting stuff. You know, I think we're at a different place. You know, honestly, I'm thinking about the comedy movie example. Like I'm struggling to think of actually a good comedy movie that I've seen in a while. And maybe it's also because like pandemic has so warped my psyche that that's not something I even like seek out. So maybe I'm not up to speed on on what's there. But, you know, I do think about that's kind of an interesting thing to think about socially is like kind of where we are. Like, what is the thing that's considered, uh, you know, funny? Like right now, there are a lot of comedians who worry about being canceled. And they're like, oh, you can't just say something because I'm trying to be like some social philosopher. Everything's like, no, I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's that you're not doing the hard work to go out and figure out where people are. You know, to, these off the cuff, easy jokes aren't funny anymore. Culture has changed. People have changed. The world has advanced and you need to keep up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's that's changed is that whether it is... Well, I mean, disability hasn't been like broadly funny for a long time, yeah. but things about, I mean, fatness, like shallow how, you know, and like aspects of, you know, race and, and gender um, have remained funny in popular culture for, for a long time. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think we're definitely kind of pushing, pushing up against that. I think, you know, one of the things 
I'm thinking about things that I have found funny relatively recently versus things that I found funny like when I was like 16. Chappelle's show was new. Also, like at the time though, like it was really funny contextually in the in its time and place, circa 2005, 2006. Yeah. There's parts uh, of it that are problematic. That's admittedly yeah, fair. But like through the lens at the time, it was relatively progressive. But, I, you know, maybe that's my own bias. But sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I, I actually, I, I tend to agree with that. But like, I think a lot of what is, what I've been able to find funny recently is things that are from people like me making fun of people like me. <laughs> I'm blanking. I'm blanking on the name of this uh, comedian. Um, she's a woman. That, she has a really hilarious stand, like bit about being an elder millennial. My like my wife loves it. I love it. You know, one of like one of the things that I think works about it is like it's not really like it's not about punching down. You know, yeah, it's exactly. it's it's not about like throwing shade at you know, people who are, you know, different or other, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of about like this comedians, most likely dramatized for effect, you know, experiences, you know, it's like, it's relatable in that like sense of a class and age. I think one of the challenges with, with that is like, it probably doesn't translate well to other demographics, right? It's content, man. That's totally okay. Like, I'm, it's not, as long as it's not like, you know, offensive to other things, but it's also like, yeah, it means, no, I get that. Yeah. But I, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't want to presume what other people think about it, but like, I don't find it offensive and <laughs> I, I think actually like thinking about it, like the only thing that holds up from, you know, back in the day while we're down nostalgia trip is, is, you know, I've always been a fan of very absurdist humor. And so I think a lot of that holds up. Like a lot of those early adult swim shows like Sea lab and Aqua Teen hunger force one. I don't know if that was anything you were ever into, but like, I still think Aqua Teen holds up because it's so fucking ridiculous that it's still, you know, kind of transcends time in a way. Whereas, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, the, definitely like more yeah more absurdist stuff like it's more it's more divorced from reality and so it doesn't it doesn't play on the kind of you know discussions that often have stereotypes associated with them that are kind of like in the in the moment in the zeitgeist yeah like my my, my oldest kid sent me a, a meme today like we said memes back and forth a lot but it was just this picture of like um, you ever seen like a Guinness beer or some beer when it's poured, particularly these English beers, this fucking cask ale stuff, and that's shade to my English friends, where it's like ninety percent of the head, like the foam, and then like a little beer at the bottom. Yeah. And this the the meme was so absurd because it was just like a socialist beer, like, and they just kept saying a socialist beer, like it's in like a like like a snapshot or snapchat screenshot and then it had like a meme text over it and it just kept saying like if socialists poured beer like nine different times like tweeted on top of each other like just over and over it just looked ridiculous like the entire point of the thing didn't make any sense like it was so like arbitrarily removed that it was it made it funny and so just tweeted back and forth with like all caps going socialist beer like it doesn't make any sense like, that's <laughs> the point where i am in society where i think things are absolutely funny um 
you know, more of the absurdest things or like this, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like that's where I'm at. Like that's the only thing that I find funny at this point. It's just the most absurd, ridiculous humor and everything else. I'm just like, ah, the world's too fucked up to really find humor in anything else unless it's absurd and demoralizing. Or the, yeah, the, I think the, the, the thing that I sent you the other, uh, you and uh, Atticus was the cropped boomer images. Oh yeah, that is. I just funny. cycled through that. No, all it is is just pictures taken from Facebook from like you know boomer level groups, and it's just cropped out to just leave specific parts of the text, and it doesn't make any fucking sense, and it's everything out of context. But that's that's where I am, <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> but it's wild because like you know you can kind of imagine what the rest of the the original meme said. You're just like. Oh, fuck this. Yeah, exactly. So it's, I don't even know where to go, man. I don't know. I'm not even sure. No, I, I think this is good. I, I really appreciate it. This is a, a really good idea. And it's something, you know, I think that's really to think about. Because I, I do think, you know, from a sense that, you know, whether it's along that sense of being provocative or thought-provoking or whatever, is that we could benefit from being more engaging. That, you know, being dry is not necessarily a thing. That's helpful. But... You know, I don't know how prescriptive that is necessarily for everyone. Again, that might be a point of privilege. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly the, like, the ability to be provocative and to, you know, still be accepted by the community can be a point of privilege. But I, th- I think the broader point about entertainment, um, I hope can, or engagement, I hope can, can hold. Um, although I do think that there is, you know, still some bias in certain corners uh against science communication um yeah which sucks yeah and i think that we as a field could do a better job of supporting people who have that that interest and hone those talents right now we're operating in a space where like faculty are expected to kind of be good at everything um, yeah, man. <laughs> which is like, which is, I think, un- harmfully unrealistic. Not that leaders of our field shouldn't have a holistic understanding all the things that come with being in this field. I think that is a ideal that we should pursue. But I think the idea that people have different talents and different proclivities and different interests, and they contribute to a supporting them contributes to a better whole for the entire field. My thinking is, is very much along, along those lines. And I'd love to see better support for science communication. I love would too. And I would actually really think it would be really awesome if we could find someone who has made the transition from academia to a more science communication role and talk to them about that process and what that's like. You know, I think, you know, you and I have both maybe dabbled in it a little bit. You know, again, I think it's arguable how much of the show is science communication. I think it is, but I think it's, we have a broader big tent version of what, you know, interpretation of what science communication is. But I think it would be interesting to, to, to talk to someone who has made that transition, like, almost completely. So if so, that's you and you want to yeah. come on the show. Majorvisionshow at gmail.com. I swear to God, I will check it. I would rather you just like t- hit us on Twitter because that's again my personal hellscape in which I live in and is easier for me to track. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, you can find us. Um, I guess with that, John, do you have any closing thoughts? No, let's let's wrap this up. We've been well, gathering. This will probably be our longest episode. Hell yeah, 90 minutes. Yeah, you can find us at Major Revisions. 
our major underscore revisions on Twitter. You can email us directly at majorrevisionshow at gmail.com. Again, we are downloadable at any of uh, the fine places where podcasts are given away free. You can tweet us, I guess, personally, if you want. I mean, I feel like we're going to not list those, but we're going to make you do a little bit of effort to go through the replies. We just hit 800 followers on Twitter today. Hot, hot damn. Yeah, actually, hey, like we we had a we had an increase. This is like for putting out shows regularly. Of looking at Twitter analytics from between March and February, we had like close to a three thousand percent increase in interactions with people and or from their from our tweets. So nice. apparently, putting out shows regularly. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thunk it? But who um, would have thunk it? Yeah, definitely appreciate everyone you know for listening. You know, the the show at this point is you know, well over, you know, 50,000 listens and downloads. And we just think that's absolutely mind blowing, honestly, and are really appreciative. And, uh, you know, give us a rating. And to paraphrase the sports journalist, Bomani Jones, give us five stars. If you give us four stars, I may incline, be inclined to believe that you are a hater. I think that's actually a direct quote, not a paraphrase. So I actually like Bomani Jones. Bomani Jones. Dude, I love Bomani. He's hilarious. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna form a Bomani fan club, and that'll be our next podcast. Okay, so so quick question on the way out: like, who is your perfect, or who is your who would you like to have on the podcast, non-science related, just for like whatever? We'll throw it out in the in, in the in the world and see if it happens. Sports journalists. Anybody, it can be you know, Bunny Jones, whatever, like that we could frame within the major revisions world. Um, I mean, sports journalism is on my mind. So Mina Kimes or Bomani Jones, That'd those are my two favorites. Pablo I'll Torre, right I also like. Uh, who was the last one? I also like Pablo Torre. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I definitely second the Bomani Jones. I'll throw out there as a Jamal Bowie, if you want to come on, Charlottesville native. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, not native, but Charlottesville resident. Uh, Anytime. He has a great podcast too. And he's been also on uh, a couple of podcasts I like called uh, You're Wrong About. So yeah, good dude. Cool. Uh, well, thank you guys for listening. Um, and check us again soon. Thanks. Take care, y'all.